Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and I'm your host. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Today's episode looks at the past, how, for better or worse, history is always with us. Clearly, some history needs to be confronted if we are ever going to learn from it. Up first, we welcome Shana Lambert, whose new novel is Petra. Inspired by Petra Kelly, the original Green Party leader and political activist who fought for the planet in 1980s Germany, Shana Lambert brings us a book about a woman who changed history and transformed environmental politics, and who, like many history-changing women, has been largely erased. Shana spoke with Peter Schneider. Peter, a longtime friend of the festival, is employed by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Public Lending Rights Commission, whose mandate is to pay authors whose work is found in Canadian public libraries from coast to coast to coast. Here's their conversation. I'm joined in conversation today by Canadian fiction writer Shana Lambert. Uh, Her fourth book, Petra has just been published by Random House of Canada. Previously to this novel, uh, Shana has published a novel, Radiance, and two collections of short fiction, The Falling Falling Woman and Oh My Darling. Shana, I'd like to begin our conversation today by talking about fiction, nonfiction, and creative nonfiction, because Petra is a novel that sometimes hugs a real-world narrative with real-world characters, and yet it is a made-up world that diverts from the historical record. Can we begin by talking about your approach to the life of Petra Kelly and how you entered this as a novelist? Well, that is just such an interesting question, and it's one that I obviously grappled with a lot as I was writing the book. I, I used, so I had up on my wall the Emily Dickinson quote, you know, tell all the truth, but tell it slant, success in circuit lies. And that was what I decided to do. And so I was going to try to get at a truth, but I was going to try to get at not what happened, but the, the undercurrent, why it happened. And, and so um, to do that, of course, I had to as any as any author does who who is fictionalizing real people, you have to go into their minds. You have to imagine what they were thinking. But I also gave myself the freedom to shift historical the, the the chronological record as necessary to meet the demands of my book. So I compressed and I pushed things together, and I, you know, I just um, I just did what I needed to make the story more interesting, really, and. Um, yeah, and throughout, I was just kind of guided with this idea that that I'm getting at a truth, but it has to be a novelistic truth. So, you know, I mean, if we if you've ever seen a biopic on TV, that's just straight biopic, and at a certain point, you go, I wish they'd compress something, because this is getting boring. That was sort of what I was thinking about. I think the book works splendidly, because it's not a work of creative nonfiction. It's not a biography. It's a work of fully realized fiction. And yet, at the same time, reading the book, we are, for those of us who were alive in the early 1980s, during the the events which are outlined in the book, during this moment in history, you've captured what it was to be watching the peace movement, the green movement, 
uh, the, the later stages of the Cold War. Can you explain to us a little bit about your, your process in re-entering that period in history? Um, well, I, I actually came of age in, you know, during that, that period. Um, and I became really, really involved in the peace movement in Canada. And um, uh, first I was the coordinator of the, uh, and the Arms Race Coalition, which was a big coalition in Vancouver that put on the enormous annual walk for pieces, walks for peace, that were, you know, 100,000 people on the streets. And, um, and during that time, by the way, um, we brought Petra Kelly to Vancouver. And I met her and I was, that's when the first seats of the novel dropped into place because she was such a fascinating, charismatic woman. And she came with her general, her general for peace, who is um, such an important part of the book, you know, of the love triangle of the book. And Petra Kelly uh, got involved with a, you know, this icon of peace got involved with a NATO general, and they became like the king and queen of, of German peace politics, um, and then got caught in this web of, of jealousy and, and um, you know, very uh, threat, increasingly threatening circumstances. But um, so, so I used my own experience I, and I just kind of morphed that into Germany. I mean, as we do as fiction writers, I kind of used what I can physically remember, the terror of nuclear war, the excitement and passion of joining with other people. Um, and, and then I did a lot of research too. I went to Germany several times and, and, um, and met people who had known Petra and who had helped found the Green Party with her. And I used a lot of what they told me too, yeah. The material is incredibly rich and it's beautifully, beautifully composed as a novel. And in the novel itself, as you're reading it, you are able to experience the story, as you say, slant from multiple perspectives, from the perspectives of many players in the story of Petra Kelly. And there is a sense of enigma, if you will, that very famous or, or publicly prominent people can also be mysterious, perhaps to themselves or to the people who are intimately involved in them. And at the core of the Petra Kelly narrative is this general that you've just referred to, who is a real life person, and in the novel is a fictionalized character named Emil. Mm -hmm. perhaps, perhaps this is a wonderful time for you to read an excerpt from the book uh, about this compelling character, this, this, this larger than life persona who enters the life of the activists who are working uh, on behalf of, of the, the Green Movement. Yeah, I'd love to. So this is from the, you know, the first pages of the book. And um, Manfred Schwartz is my narrator and he is in love with Petra Kelly. He's in, he's always well, you know, like, some of the men I met in Germany, it's a lifelong love. It doesn't go away. It doesn't even go away when she's when she dies. Anyway, he's in love with her, and they are he and Petra are out at the farmhouse where they do a lot of the organizing for against the nuclear missiles uh, to be deployed in Germany. And also, they're working to co-found the Green Party, which was the first successful and internationally impactful Green Party in the world. So they were just breaking so much ground. Um, anyway, this is when um, they first, the two of them, find out about this NATO general. Um, 
I should say that Petra and I hadn't been lovers for over a year. This wasn't my choice, and I still had hopes. In the last year, the Irish trade unionists had fallen away, too possessive, and the Hamburg artist had been tasted and dismissed. His art was minimalist, but he was a cluttered mess of needs and recriminations. And it was me, Manfred Schwartz, pushing open the bathroom door. Petra shook the newspaper at me. The pads of her fingers had softened from the water. Her short, wet hair lay flat against her face. Just listen to what this NATO general has done, she said. Gone from her face was what I thought of as her scissors look, pinched and pale, stripped of humor. She started to hand me the newspaper, then grabbed it back and read out loud, Commander of the 12th Panzer Division of the Bundeswehr. The gist was this. At a much-publicized rifle banquet in Marbach the night before, a general NATO, a NATO general, had made a scene. A black tie event, she said. You can imagine. The women must have all been in long gloves, gowns covered in sequins. But here, listen. There's a tradition in the club of bringing out a massive roasted pig into the hall, a spanferkel on a platter with an apple in its mouth, while the military band strikes up a ceremonial march. Well, the military band chose to choose, chose to play the Badenweiler Marsch. She looked at me pointedly. And yes, I understood. This was Hitler's march, played whenever he entered a public rally. This fact was well known to us, and it underlined without further words how fused the present Bonn elite was to the old system. Ancient Nazis recycled and turned into judges and politicians. For non-Germans, it might have been possible to listen to the Badenweiler Marsch with its whistles and flutes and piccolos, followed by the three distinctive horns, and not hear the darker resonance of Nazism, but not for my people, children of the Nazi generation. Petra shook the paper straight and continued to read. No sooner had the band struck up the tune than General Emil Gerhardt, commander, etc., 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 pushed back his chair, crossed the room, and tapped the conductor on the shoulder. I would prefer it, said the general, if that particular march was not played, neither here nor on any occasion. Thanks. What's incredible uh, listening to you uh, read from the book and reading the book is the way in which you are able to portray on a very intimate scale uh, the lives of these people who are still sorting out the aftermath of what happened in Europe in the 30s and 40s, the, the outcome of the Second World War, the horrors of war, and the different perspectives that people have based on their generational experience. I, I'm interested in knowing a bit more about your take on generational interpretation and the richness of, of that moment in the 1980s as people encountered the present and the past while trying to preserve a hope for the future for the planet. Well, I mean, that was one of the electrifying things about sort of dipping down and into the novel for me was that generation of young people and as Germans and what it meant to join the nuclear, the nuclear fight. They were really saying no. I mean, over in Canada or United States, I mean, we were saying no to a state that wanted to, you know, organize um, something that was going to kill everybody. 
and we thought it was, you know, crazy, and we thought the superpowers, you know, uh, were playing, you know, some kind of dangerous, dangerous nuclear game. But for the Germans in that generation, they were looking at the eye into the eyes of their mothers and their fathers, and they were confronting them. And when they were saying no to, you know, governmentally sanctioned mass death through the missiles, the echoes of that other governmentally sanctioned mass death that the Nazis had perpetrated was so close. And it was just in the, that sort of period in the 80s that, that these young people were exploring. I mean, they had been raised in a lot of silence and they were starting to talk about like, what did you do in the war, daddy? What, you know, and when they named the, you know, when the 68ers, the, you know, really um, politically engaged a student movement that grew out of Europe and particularly was powerful in Germany. You know, they, they were called the 68ers over there. And um, they named, um, you know, they had a, a name for the system. They called it the Schwein system, you know. And they were talking about the system that allowed the, that the, the, the Nazis had created. And that really, in the present moment, a lot of those Nazis, people who had been, you know, part of the, of that entire um, swath of history had been recycled into judges, into politicians. And so they felt that the system was just riddled with this, um, you know, terror from before and that it, you know, came right down to their own parents. So, yeah, so that was part of the power of that movement that when they said, when the Germans, when these young German people like Petra, like Manfred said, no, they were saying no to an entire history. And it was, I just remember being in, in, in Vancouver and reading about it in the paper, these enormous demonstrations that they would have where, you know, uh, they would join hands, the, the anti-nuclear protesters would join hands and create a chain 200 miles long from one military ba base to, you know, Stuttgart. And, and it was, yeah, it was thrilling. Shana, I would like to return to the, the character of the general in a moment. But first, I'd like to mention how vivid and how beautifully evoked the lives of what we might think of as secondary characters are in this novel. It's a novel built around the world and the life of Petra Kelly. And yet there's an entire supporting cast of, of comrades or friends, allies and lovers. And there are triangles upon triangles of connection and what emerges for me as a reader um, are the, the quiet triumphs and the strength of many of the female characters in this book. Thank you. Um, I'm really thrilled to hear you say that. I, I, I know that I personally loved creating Helena, um, who is Emil Gerhardt's uh, wife, who he leaves uh, in order to get involved with Petra Kelly. And um, yeah, that was that was and a real joy for me as a writer to get into her head. Um, and Katrina, who is um, Manfred's um, uh, girlfriend at the beginning, sort of who he dumps because he's just can't get over Petra, can never get over Petra. I also, I also enjoyed creating her. She was a, she was an interesting woman who gained strength as the novel progresses. And that was unusual. I didn't know that that was going to happen. The, the, the interesting thing for a reader who has the ability now to say, go to Wikipedia or to do research on the real life events is to see how there are echoes of the historical record in your book. 
and yet a rich interiority that is that is fictional. And yet having met, as someone who met Petra Kelly uh, when she came to Canada, um, can you describe her personal aura or her, her effect on people? And that's evoked in the book, that she was a magnetic person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, she really was. I, um, when I, I didn't know what to expect when we had her come to Vancouver. There was, um, there was a controversy around bringing her because um, a lot of the people in my, my particular coalition, you know, they kind of were supported, tacit or secret supporters of the Soviet Union. As a lot of people you know, were in the movement, the movement was very broad and it included some communist supporters, let's face it. And um, they thought that she was going to be a wild card, that she was going to be too feminist on stage, that she was going to take to the stage and you know, talk about the sins of East Germany and the problems with the Soviet Union and the fact that dissidents on the other side of the wall who were fighting for peace were going to have to be freed from, you know, their cells in Normannenstrasse. And when she did come, she took to the stage and she did all of that. You know, she was just amazing. She just had this huge um, agenda and she was fierce. And she was also, I mean, she was physically very um, beautiful. She was waif-like and boyish with this blonde brown hair. And But she, I just remember her leaning forward at the podium and just, just expressing herself so charismatically. And so she was, um, and so I, I just, I was riveted. Uh, we were all riveted. It was at the Orpheum Theater. And, but then afterwards, you know, her general for peace, um, was there with her and um, we were waiting in the lobby and I was chatting with her and she was asking me a lot of questions. She was very generous in her um, involvement of female activists. You know, she was asking me personal questions and questions about the movement and so forth. Um, And, um, and then um, the general realized it was raining and he went and found an umbrella and opened it for her and took all her bags and then walked her across the street, you know, and I just thought, what is this feminist doing with this general who is just like a, I mean, they called him her baggage carrier, but he took such a, you know, archetypically male role in their relationship. And those, the dissonance of that was absolutely fascinating for me. And I think that was the first seed of the novel was that, that little scene acted out on the street and him reaching out to carry her bags and and help her across the road. And then, and then years later, I found out that, that she was dead. And, and um, those question marks just stuck in my head. And I, it, you know, they would never have been so profound if I hadn't been personally moved by her, you know. She was just, she was, she was what I'm coming to call, a friend of mine named it, some of these, some of these people in the past, particularly women, and we see them. We see it now in Greta Thunberg. We see it in, Oct- uh, you know, um, Alexandria Octavio Cortez um, is a, a flame bearer. She was a flame bearer, and she had that. She had that energetic power. She could just like speak truth to power. But just you know, to weave in these other parts of her, she was narcissistic. She was full of anxiety before every speech. She would feel sick to her stomach. She bossed people around mercilessly. She was just a bundle of contradictions, you know. Mm-hmm. She was a very complicated person. You you capture this so beautifully and sensitively, and in a way, as a novelist, uh, with a distance, without judgment. And yet, if one were to 
look at the narrative of Petra Kelly's life, or her romantic life, one sees a pattern. She was attracted to older men, father figures. Mm-hmm. Yes, she certainly was, yeah. The, the general was a father figure, and yet, paradoxically, he had to make himself smaller to be, as people said, the, the baggage carrier, and yet that seemed to exact an enormous psychic toll on him as a military man, as, a, as, as someone who was accustomed to giving orders and not following orders. And yet the erotic fascination that these two people had, this connection they had for one another, in many ways was quite subversive. Yes, I mean, they get into a real love tangle between them. I think that she fell in love with his integrity. He was, she named it for herself. She, he was a general with a conscience. And he, I think that she, <clears throat> in my novel at least, um, because of course I had to figure out what might have been going on between them using the clues that had been left by the historical f- players, but using that kind of novelist guesswork to get underneath. And my guess was that she she felt as though um, if she could change one general, if she could love him and, and, and he could be a force for peace, then the world could somehow shift on its axis. And, you know, that idea that you think locally and act globally, like if she could think locally into the very heart of this general, and that he could be, as she really believed him to be a good man, then that would cause some kind of alterations that would have ripples. And so they're acting out something very intimate. It's like, I called it a nuclear tango. They, they're acting out this intimate dance. But the problem is that his, his history, um, you know, in the, in the German army, in the Wehrmacht, is, haunts him. And she ends up pushed by by Manfred and other people asking him more and more and more questions about that past. And as it fills a larger section of uh, their psyche together, uh, she feels she feels sort of called upon to witness that past. And it, 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 it's horrific and, and, and frightening. And that's where in the novel, I really got into that question of, you know, the German idea, post-war idea of um, um, coming to terms with the past you know, that, um, that the Maeterlinks wrote about and that um, Adorno writes a lot about and that people were really uh, concerned about immediately after the war, like in the 10 or 20 years after the war, that idea that if you are going to witness somebody's, witness the past, if, we, if the Germans were to come to terms with the Nazi past and the SS and the destruction of so many innocent people, that had to be done um, not shallowly, not as I'm going to say a quick sorry and get it over with, you know, all these terms of hopeful absolution were not adequate to the atrocities that had been committed. And so really it's like when you address the past, how do you do it with authentically with your body and your mind and your spirit? How do you, what do you pass through? So I think they got caught in that world where they, he's, she's putting him through fire, you know, in order to face his collusion and he entered the Green Party and hoped to become lovers with Petra for entirely other reasons. I think he was looking for an enormous green field to run through that would 
reclaim his youth and and his um, sex appeal and 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 absolve him. You know, I think he was looking for absolution, and that is not what she can give him. And in in many ways, it was narcissistic as well. That they 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 each had tremendously narcissistic aspects to their characters. That's right, and 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 yeah, that's that that that's really true, actually. And um, I hadn't really thought of him as a narcissist, but it's true. He had he certainly um, desired this particular thing. And I think, I mean, certainly at the beginning of the book, I have tremendous fondness for him because who wouldn't want absolution? Who wouldn't want to be cleansed. Um, we, we all want that for the things that have happened in the past. And so he, he caught on to the Green Party and particularly to, to Petra. He fell in love with her fire. And I think he thought that fire was is going to cleanse him. And um, But meanwhile, of course, they're also tangled in the fact that he he's still involved with his wife. And so there's just jealousy happening as well. She wants him. She wants him for herself. And she can't because he's always turning back to take care of the wife and the wife says you know if you leave me you have to come home and help look after the dog I'm not going to be responsible for the dog's sole care so <laughs> so he, he goes back on the weekends to look after the dog so so she doesn't really have him so she even though she's this great incredible believer in you know free sex and um, and um, polyamory as we call it now um, she's just riven with 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 jealousy about the beautiful the beautiful wife Shana, the fact that as a novelist, you can work with time, you can work with perspective, um, enables you in this book to place the death of Petra Kelly in the middle of the novel and have the reader absorb that. And I think as a, as a reader, I think what I appreciated was that then we had a second movement, a second part which celebrated her life and explored her complexity as a living person. If you know what I'm trying to say, I hope that um, she, her end came in a very lurid um, manner, very violent death, very young, which we won't give away. Um, however, um, that can be the point sometimes with famous figures that we, we, we fixate on that and we neglect to go over the meaning and the value of their acts and their deeds while they were alive. Well, yes, exactly. I mean, that's so much the point of the book is, um, you know, it's, it's halfway through the novel, as you say, Manfred is thinking about Petra and he's gone to visit her grave. She died in 1992. And Manfred is writing this memoir, the book, which is his memoir, Petra. Uh, Manfred is writing it in... Um, the present time so it takes place you know now and he's looking back and he realizes i don't want to think of her as i don't want the world to think of her as a body in a bed a dead a dead body a murdered body she was murdered in a bed um she deserves so much more than that and so he's trying to bring her back into full life um because she wasn't a victim she was a victim, but that is not her ultimate placement in his mind. What she is is actually something so much broader that has to do with um, her spirit, which you know we sort of realize progressively as the story goes on. Her spirit continues to live 
in him, not just in memory, but in, a, in, in his own child. And there's lots of ways in which that spirit of Patrick Kelly continues to live on. And, and so I wanted to honor that, but I noticed it in the people I interviewed in, in, in uh, Germany, how much she lived on in their psyches. Um, you know, beautiful stories they would tell me where they would light up or, you know, one, one fellow said, took me up to a the pagoda in his garden. Um, I think really to get away from his, his wife who was in the house and then brought out the old pictures of her. And, you know, her, she was laughing. She was young. Her hair was blowing in the, in the wind. He was still in love with her, you know? And he was the one who said to me, as we were talking and looking at the pictures, he said, um, you know, the dead um, can be any age once they're dead. And so that was also important. She is not just her final incarnation as a murdered woman. She is all of those incarnations and in his mind. And that is, I think, the beauty of, of, of Petra Kelly is that, um, I mean, she's been very erased in our, you know, only, you know, she, she died in 92. So 28 years after her death, she, she, a lot of people don't know who she is. And I understand that some people know who she is and they're shocked that I would write about her because she's such an iconic person in their mind. But other people don't know who she was at all. And one guy said to me, oh, I, yeah, I know. I know." He was a very political guy. And he said, oh, I know who Petra Kelly is. She was that figure skater, um, which, by the way, I put into the book. Somebody says that. But, you know, people have erased her. She should, she, her resonance should go on and on and on. And uh, I think that's one of the things that Manfred, my alter ego, realizes as he's writing this memoir that that she's come back for him, that she's still alive. It's a it's a magnificent book. I mean, honestly, um, it, it has a beautiful perspective, and I think it's it's a disciplined book, and it's a human and, and very very richly uh, emotional book at the same time, and it makes this moment in, in our history come alive. And what I really, really enjoy was the fact that reading the book, it moves very quickly and you are able to put so much into their worlds and, and on the page. How did you restrain yourself as a writer? Because it is a beautifully structured book in terms of the, the succession of short chapters and different per perspectives, almost like someone laying cards down on a table. Uh, was it a long process to get to the final manuscript? That's amazing you say that. So I did lay cards down on the table. I mean, I put, really, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I I made file cards and I and I um I tried and I I color coded them. I mean, this is at some point, you know, this is Shana in despair trying to figure out the structure. And so I um you know I I I had you know blue for one character and green for another character and pink and I just tried to make sure that no character got actually left behind, even though I knew that for instance that some of the secondary characters were only going to show up in little portions of the book. I still wanted to make sure their narrative went forward. And, you know, this idea that, that Edith Wharton has that a novel is um, incremental changes in a character over time. And so I wanted to make sure that when these different characters who were woven into the backstory showed up again, they would be changed. There would be change in them and that we would be able to trace that with the other, along with the other major characters and their and their narrative and it was a struggle to figure out how to 
um, keep the keep the narrative going with Manfred telling the story, but with Petra zooming up in certain places and and the general also zooming up in certain key places and his wife zooming up. So, and at one point, I drew a a big diagram, and I had six different circles, and each of those represented a movement in the book. And I instead of plotting it, plotting the book on a piece of paper from you know, that the typical arcs of, um, of crisis that we're used to, um, that is linear. I, I, I charted the whole book as, as six concentric circles with the movements taking place within the circles. And that helped for a while. That helped. I think that moved me to a, to a new place where I, oh, where I was able to finish the first draft of the book anyway, um, was, that, was that circle structure. Thank you for for sharing, you know, that insight into your process and into craft. And again, it's not apparent as you read the book. All of that art um, is subsumed in just the pleasure of the narrative and the immediacy of the story. Um, so you never think of the structure until you're finished and you go, that was a delight. And I want to say thank you so much for taking time to speak with me today for the Ottawa Writers' Festival. Oh, thank you, Peter. It's been a real pleasure. That was Peter Schneider in conversation with Shana Lambert on her new novel, Petra. At this stage in the pandemic, 2019 seems like ancient history, like a world half-remembered. We're grateful to be connecting with you virtually, but very much missing our community. We asked a longtime supporter, Norm, to tell us what he loves most about the festival. Hi, my name is Norm and I've been attending the Writers' Festival since at least 2013. I think the Ottawa Writers' Festival is one of the best events in this city. Author Talks provide stimulating ideas and the relaxed environment allows for conversation amongst festival goers and authors. Add in wine, craft, beer and great food at the cafe and you get the perfect day. Thanks Norm. And thank you to everyone who has made a donation to support the festival through this strange time. It means the world to us, and without your support, we can't continue to celebrate great writing. So thank you. Up next is Francesca Ekuyasi. Her debut novel, Butter, Honey, Pig Bread, is one of the most talked about debuts in years. Kai Chang Tom says, Her sensuous prose, deft plotting, and keen insights into human nature combined to form a vision that feels like peering deep into the souls of a trio of dear friends. Francesca spoke with Catherine Hernandez, whose stellar debut, Scarborough, has just been adapted as a feature film and whose latest novel, Crosshairs, is getting rave reviews from readers around the world. They spoke just a day or two after Francesca found out that she had made the long list for the 2020 Scotiabank Giller Prize. Here's a taste of the prose, followed by their conversation. doesn't remember how she got the scar on her chin, but I do. It happened after our father's death, when Uncle Ernest and Auntie Funke were with us, and she had stopped sleeping in my room. Tai used to walk in her sleep, traipsed down the stairs in an eerie daze. I discovered her one night, swaying slightly in the kitchen, eyes closed, a thin line of blood dripping down her chin. Our mother was before her, silhouetted by the cold light of the open fridge. She was gaunt, her thin body a curve made sinister by the glint of a small paring knife in her right hand. 
The blade was clean. It must have been a swift slice. Her eyes shifted, unfocused, as she muttered under her breath. Terror seized me, and I grabbed Tai's cold hand and led her out of the kitchen. Our mother gasped, low and horrified, as we rushed away. Our mother is insane. No, I should say this instead. I believe that our mother is insane and occasionally has moments of vibrant lucidity. In those small windows of clarity, she is tender. Outside of that, she dances between catatonic and grieving. There's also the rage. The first time I witnessed it was after our father died, after the bad thing happened, but before we went to London. During that incident, Taya woke me up by shaking my shoulders. I was still angry with her and started to turn away when I saw the glint of tears in her eyes. What? I asked. It's Mammy. Just then, I heard our mother screaming and loud thumps and crashing. We rushed downstairs and saw her smashing a dining chair against the door of the guest bedroom where Uncle Ernest and Auntie Funke had stayed. Her thin arms lifted the hefty chair above her head and crashed it against the door over and over until there was nothing left but two splintered legs. Her face was a blur. It looked like her features had been rubbed by an eraser. Does that make sense? My mind still cannot comprehend it, but that is what I remember. I turned to Tai to ask if she could see our mother's face, but her eyes were shut tight and she was holding her breath. Sister BC rushed over to lead us back upstairs. God, there were so many nights like that. It just became normal. Now, our mother is cooing at us as we prepare to head out for Isabella's engagement party, smiling with a genuine light. It's infuriating. I hope that you're feeling proud of yourself. Thank you so much. I, I feel, I don't, I mean, I, I feel like I'm technically feel proud of myself, but also, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I am proud of myself. <laughs> Oh, but like walk us through this because, you know, many authors want to know what the experience was like. How did you find out the news? Right. So my publisher emailed me a link a few days before saying, just keep an eye out. This is the, uh, the Giller Prize short, long list will be announced on this link. Fingers crossed. Um, and I just did that like Saturday morning. Oh, no. Uh, when was it? Two days ago. I... I had a very intense morning involving my chickens. And so uh, I was dealing with that. And I remembered that I had to, like, look at this link. So I screamed. All my friends screamed and called me immediately. Um, it felt incredible and, like, such an honor because I was, I was like, manifesting and praying. But I also wasn't really expecting. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think I had a chance. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, I most definitely thought you had a chance and you know why is because I'm one of the people who blurbed your book. I was honored. I was 
honor to do so. And you know what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to read my blurb because then it's a good way for us to open it up is by reading my spectacularly written uh, blurb of, for your spectacular book um, in this remarkable novel. So this is Butter, Honey, Pig, Bread, published by Arsenal Pulp Press, a uh, Family of Nigerian women attempt to carefully tiptoe around an unspeakable tragedy through masterfully crafted scenes full of sumptuous imagery. Readers are moved just as these characters are by forces beyond their control, beyond their lifetimes. So tell me in your own words, what is your book about so that the audience can know a little bit about you and the work that you have created? <laughs> so my book is about three women. It's about a mother and her twin daughters. Um, and their relationship, but more than that, it's about these women's relationships with themselves, um, because the main character, um, one of the main characters, a mother character, has um, a belief about her identity that makes it challenging to be a mother and be a partner, um, because this is what she believes about herself, and then it's about the twins and their struggle um, around their twinness and their struggle with their relationship with their mother. Um, so like that's basically what it's about, but more than that, it's it's about food and pleasure and um, relationships ultimately, and just like being a human, trying to have relationships with other humans when <laughs> what before you figured out how to be a human. <laughs> Yes, yes. No, I, I, I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased uh, to hear in your own words what it's about, because to me, it just felt like it was just magic on every page. Um, and as I said, masterful sentences um, to paint a picture um, for all of us. Now, um, tell me about the inspiration behind the piece. Okay, <laughs> I just like that. You said masterful sentences and I'm like, ah, so thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome so much. Um, the inspiration was, um, I was home in 2013. I'm from Lagos, Nigeria, and I was home for seven months um, from the, I used to live in the States, and I was done with my degree and with my work visa, and so I moved home, but um, knew that, that I would potentially have to leave again, because at that time I was coming to terms with my own queerness and um, uh, queerness is criminalized in Nigeria um, and just culturally, like like many countries, just really frowned upon. So I knew that I had to kind of move on. Um, and, and but, but I wasn't sure how yet. I'd applied to grad school and gotten in, but I needed to get a student visa. And most Nigerians know the hustle for like a travel visa can be intense <laughs> so while I was um waiting I was reading a lot I went back to my childhood library um and just took out all the books I loved I had read before and loved reading and I also had some books from like my adulthood so reading those books really inspired me to write um I was reading Teju Cole's Open City um and this character the book is just about this character walking around New York City and I really liked that just like being in this character's mind it was kind of stream of consciousness so I, I loved reading that and I wanted to be able to write in a similar way that would give a reader the same feeling that I had when I was reading that um, because even though I didn't like the main character and I didn't really care about the story I was invested in this character's walks around the city and his perception of the city um, so I wanted to be able to create that. 
recreate that in my own way, like with my own characters, with my own story, just recreate that feeling of being like physically or sensually where the, the character is. Um, so more than anything, I think my inspiration came from just reading a, a lot, reading books I grew up reading, like um, Ben Okri's Famished Road. Um, another book, I always forget the name, but I've, I've read it so many times, a lot when I was a teenager. It's an epistolary fiction about uh, by an Australian writer about an Australian girl whose best friend goes missing. Like she's not nothing. She's not harmed. She just runs away, and it's just letters between the two of them. Um, so yeah, I was inspired by just all the stories I was reading, um, and and also like coming to terms with my own queer identity as a Nigerian person. And so when you're coming to terms uh, with your own identity, tell me a little bit about that journey of writing that into being, because obviously you're, you're writing something that is a part, um, it's apart from you, and it's also a part of you. Um, so tell me about that journey, about that per- very personal journey as, an, as a writer. Yeah, I, I strive, but I think I often fail to separate my fiction more from myself. Um, an example is I, I like to write about all sorts of like, like different genres and all sorts of like wild narratives that likely will never happen or can ever happen. Anything is possible really. Um, but I was compiling, um, some short stories, hoping for a publication once. And I was reading through it and saw that, um, even as different as the stories were, one's specific thing kept happening to one specific type of character and I hadn't intended it and these were stories I'd written over a few years and it was just really crystal clear to me that I I was putting myself in these stories in just fragmented ways um, and so that also showed up in writing this um, because I was 23 at the t- when I started and like finished it last year so <laughs> over the course of I think seven years maybe that I um I was coming to terms of being queer and being Nigerian and what that looked like and everything I'd read or seen about racialized queer people was sort of traumatic was about like a either like a religious struggle or a struggle with coming coming out in quotations or I just didn't want to recreate that because I wanted better for myself. Like I wanted my queerness to be just personally. I wanted I want my queerness to be the least interesting thing about me, because it is the least interesting thing about me. <laughs> um, and so I wanted to give that to a character. Um, so one of the characters is queer, and that's really not the point. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question at all. <laughs> no, no, I think that's wonderful. It's like, you know, why not write joy and why not write um, like nuance, right, when it comes to queerness? Um, absolutely, like going beyond the trauma. Absolutely, that's very, very important. And so what what has it been like? Um, have people from your community uh, expressed any feelings about the about the work no I'm so nervous um because I have like relatives who I didn't necessarily grow up with and be close with but because of social media we are aware of each other and I've had them express excitement about it and I'm nervous that and like these some of them are quite religious um specific type of Nigerian Christianity (laughs) so I'm, I'm nervous about what they'll have to say I'm nervous about what 
uh, like Nigerian communities or Nigerian people who are still unlearning or dealing with their own homophobia, how they'll receive it. Um, because it's just one, there's the whole book, two of the main characters are very hetero or or at least their queerness is not part of the story. It just, you know. But my fear is that the one queer character's queerness will take over and turn people off from reading the book. Um, yeah, and like I'm not interested in pandering ever, but I'm also not interested in alienating, so... Ah, oh, so tricky. That's so tricky. And and as well, it's like, it, it's it's a lot because I imagine, I'm, maybe I'm just imagining something that doesn't necessarily exist for you, but um, especially with being longlisted for the Giller, the visibility of the book also means the possibility of more backlash, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, I hope more than anything, people are just like Nigerians or, you know, Christian communities are just like excited for me or like maybe don't even care <laughs> maybe I, I feel like that's more likely the case is that it doesn't even matter <laughs> <laughs> well you know what I hope for you this is what I wish for you is that I wish it was going to be like in the Filipino community where such rampant homophobia and transphobia but then you know as long as you win a singing competition that is exactly then all of a sudden you're in everybody's good books everyone's like oh I, I remember Francesca back in the day oh you know I yeah that this is what I hope for you this is this is my dream I'm sure Let, let's just manifest that um especially around like yeah let's let's just use prize culture uh to its advantage right um so tell me about your writing process because it seems that obviously you are a voracious reader obviously I think that everyone should listen to this podcast listen to you and just add to their to be read pilot like just in this first 10 minutes alone you've already referred to several books that we we all should read um but tell me about tell me about your process it's haphazard (laughs) (laughs) I like that Um, I think, um, so more than anything, I'm grateful, like my favorite feature is my imagination. So, um, even when I feel stagnant in like producing anything, even when I feel, uh, when I'm like, if I'm like dealing with the depression or just like some sadness, my imagination is really active. Um, and so I feel like I always have company, <laughs> <laughs> so um so my process is kind of releasing my imagination and it's reading as much as I can until I have no desire but to write um which you know is easy to say for this book because I didn't really have an agenda or a goal I just had an idea and a hope um but like I know that for the next things I write, um, I need a lot of discipline um, <laughs> and not waiting until three days before the deadline. Um, but my process involves <laughs> <laughs> involves reading a lot and evol- involves um, editing until I can edit no more, until I no longer want to look at the page. <laughs> um, yeah, it's not, yeah, I, I, I'm... My hope, my desire, my ambition, my plan is to be disciplined, is to wake up and write first thing, um, to read more intentionally. That's my hope for a process. But what it's looked like is me following my mood and reading what I want, 
writing when I can. Um, yeah. <laughs> You know, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that 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 sounds perfectly fine for me. And it sounds like a wonderful author's life. It's just, you know, write when you can and read what you want. Just because I think that there's this weird work ethic that people believe makes a good author, you know, just to sit and force yourself to read and write. I I just, I'm not sure if that necessarily works for everybody. Um, It certainly doesn't work for me. Uh, I really do feel like you just have to be open to the time when the words come and also just trust that your body needs to rest when it rests. Uh, Yeah, yeah, especially now, especially because, you know, with you making the long list, um, possibly be making the the short list, is that uh, self-care is going to be seriously, seriously important. And so what what right now um, is... Is brewing in your mind is there any new work that you're thinking of is there and, and no pressure of course but is there something is there another project on the horizon oh yeah so um okay so you were a judge for the journey prize last year oh yeah <laughs> and i was long listed uh, and that story i wrote was such a pleasure to write and it kind of just came came out mm-hmm. um and so i've been expanding on that um, on that story, but sort of like a different, same universe, but different timeline of that same story. Um, and, and I, I submitted something to like a film granting agency in Nigeria. I didn't, I made the long list, but I didn't get to the finals, but the, because I had to write a treatment, which is basically a synopsis <laughs> of a character sketch, um, I'm really invested in this particular story about um, kind of unethical drug testing uh, by multinational pharmaceutical company, uh, com- corporations um, on the continent of Africa. So those are two projects that I'm really excited about. Um, and just short stories. I'm always, there's a short story I've been, there's three short stories I've been writing for the last three years. So I would like to give them a chance to exist and let them go. Um, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. What's inspiring you right now? Mm. <laughs> I don't even know. Snacks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, it's difficult, right? Because I, I, you know, I find wandering is really important as a writer. And it's so weird in this COVID reality is that we can't, there's no wandering happening, right? So, because um, like, you know, I love taking long, long walks, um, thinking about things and just like sitting or talking to other people, um, you know, without masks on. Uh, so how, what, what has your life been since the world has turned upside down? Or rather that like it's been revealed that the world has been upside down this entire Absolutely, time. Absolutely, yeah. It's, this is just we're just slowing down and being like, oh no, it's actually been horrible. Maybe we don't want to go back to normal. (laughs) Um, Yes, yeah. My experience honestly has been incredibly privileged um, because I'm in Halifax in Nova Scotia and the cases here are very, compared to the rest of the country, are very low. Mm -hmm. It's a small city. It's beautiful. There's access to the oceans, to walking trails, to the woods. And this is my first year like first summer in a new place that has a backyard so even before we were in like quarantine lockdown for I think two months early in the pandemic but I had access to a backyard just in time for spring and um 
So my experience has been extremely privileged, and I'm very grateful. Um, you know, the, my friends in Toronto and Montreal and New York are living a very different quarantine experience where I've been able to see my friends. Um, yeah, I've been able to see my friends and hug my friends in public places and in like shops. My day job is at a bookstore. We have to have the one of my day jobs is at the bookstore, <laughs> but we have to have our masks on, which feels so horrible. But also, I'm happy to do whatever it takes to keep everyone safe. Um, but yeah, and and what you said about wandering that wasn't accessible for a while because the parks were closed. But now, for now, we'll see what happens in the next few months. But wandering is, is possible and it's Halifax is such a small city that I could walk from the north end where I live to the south end where I used to live in about an hour yeah <laughs> and that feels good um the sidewalks aren't as populated as bigger cities um I could take a certain turn and be in a wooded area so um feeling extremely grateful and and like, like I have a bit of a responsibility not to whine too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, what's really funny is that Halifax was actually the last place I went to before the lockdown. Yeah, it was to attend um, an opening night for um, like for a play that we were producing. And so like, what is it like for you being a, a writer in Halifax? Like what um, what is uh, Nova Scotia like? Nova Scotia is very beautiful and the people are very nice um, but nice is not necessarily a good thing <laughs> it's just a thing it's just a, a way of not really facing the truth but but um, as a writer here it's really incredible because um, just because of the jobs I've had even when I've made um, considerably less of an income than I do now I was able to afford a place to live and time to write so even if it's between shifts um there's always a cafe or a bar to write at and another thing is like the Arts Nova Scotia is like a the you know the arts granting agency here there is um I mean, there's less money, but there's also fewer people. So that feels possible. Mm. It just feels like a place of possibility as an art, as, a, as an artist, as a writer, um, because, you know, I, I think that false sense of competition that is, or it's not false, but the, the forced, <laughs> forced competition between artists in bigger places or more populated places, um, doesn't exist the same degree here. Um, with that said, um, <laughs> it's necessary to like find the intern for me to like find my own internal like mark because I because I how can I say this? There isn't necessarily a clear standard. I feel like in larger cities or other places I've lived, um, there's like a standard of quality mm-hmm. that if you're below that quality you have to just work harder here. You have to make the standard for yourself. I think I have to make the standard for myself. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? 
Oh no, absolutely. No, I I think I think the ways in which you're challenging yourself is is really showing in the work that you've presented to us. Like we're so lucky to receive this, and um and I'm so so pleased. I'm 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 really really excited to see where your writing is going to take you next. Whatever standards there are that you're going to be setting for yourself in the future. Um, uh, what do you what kind of advice did you have? Because I'm sure that a lot of people are you know because especially this is your debut novel, long listed for the Gillers. Um, what kind of advice you have for people who are looking at you saying, oh my gosh, Francesca is goals. What, what, what would you say to them, um, you know, when, you know, as they're putting pen to paper, um, what would you say to inspire them uh, to continue working? Oh, yeah. For writers, I say read a lot and don't really, it's not really your business what anyone else is doing. I think social media has kind of ruined our lives a little bit. <laughs> Um, where we we're comparing ourselves to people but we don't really know what's happening and so and I've done that right like I've looked at my peers in the U.S. and Nigeria and I'm like ah they are winning and I'm so behind um it's not real of number one but like read a lot and just write because I think I don't know maybe I'm wrong maybe I'll learn but I don't know that there's any bad writing I think there's just like unedited writing (laughs) (laughs) it just needs to be edited a lot and worked on the first draft of anything we don't I don't want to see it like I don't even want to see my first draft of anything agreed (laughs) but yeah for so I think my suggestions to anyone would be like do the thing write the story just just do it and focus on it and take feedback (laughs) yes yes oh this is so valuable, Francesca. I really, really appreciate the time that you took to speak to all of us um, for, about your process and about this exciting time in your life. We are all cheering you on, and um, I'm very excited to uh, see where the future takes you. That was Catherine Hernandez in conversation with Francesca Ecuyasi about her Giller-nominated novel, Butter, Honey, Pig, Bread. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season and to our festival members and donors for making this possible. Our entire virtual season is available online at writersfestival.org and all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Thank you all for listening today. Thanks again to Shana, Peter, Catherine, and Francesca for participating in Writers Festival Radio. Join us on Friday for our next episode, Neurodiversity and the Ever-Changing Brain, featuring Sarah Kerchak and David Eagleman. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn. Original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director. And I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Mm-hmm.